Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's story is a long short story, and a very enjoyable one, written by Richard Harding Davis. The, the title of the story is The Reporter Who Made Himself King. Richard Harding Davis was a popular writer of fiction and drama, and a journalist famous for his coverage of the Spanish-American War, the Second Boer War, and the First World War. Davis, whose mother Rebecca Harding Davis was also a prominent writer in her day, made his reputation as a newspaper reporter from May to June of 1889, reporting on the devastation of Johnstown, PA, following the infamous flood. He also reported on other events, including the first electrocution of a criminal, which was the death of William Kemmler in 1890. Davis later became managing editor of Harper's Weekly, and was one of the world's leading war correspondents at the time of the Second Boer War in South Africa. As an American, he had the unique opportunity to see the war firsthand from both the British and Boer perspectives. Davis also worked as a reporter for the New York Herald, The Times, and Scribner's Magazine. He was popular among the leading writers of his time and was considered the model for illustrator Charles Dana Gibson's Dashing Gibson Man, the male equivalent of his famous Gibson Girl. He is also referenced early in Sinclair Lewis's book Dodsworth as the example of an exciting, adventure-seeking, legitimate hero. And now part one of The Reporter Who Made Himself King by Richard Harding Davis. The old-time journalist will tell you that the best reporter is the one who works his way up. He holds that the only way to start is as a printer's devil or as an office boy, to learn in time to set type, to graduate from a compositor into a stenographer, and as a stenographer, take down speeches at public meetings, and so finally grow into a real reporter with a fire badge on your left suspender and a speaking acquaintance with all the greatest men in the city, not even accepting police captains. That is the old-time journalist's idea of it. That is the way he was trained, and that is why at the age of 60 he is still a reporter. If you train up a youth in this way, he will go into reporting with too full a knowledge of the newspaper business, with no illusions concerning it, and with no ignorant enthusiasms, but with a keen and justifiable impression that he has not paid enough for what he does, and he will only do what he's paid to do. Now, you cannot pay a good reporter for what he does, because he does not work for pay. He works for his paper. He gives his time, his health, his brains, his sleeping hours, and his eating hours, and sometimes his life, to get news for it. He thinks the sun rises, only that men may have light by which to read the paper. But if he has been in a newspaper office from his youth up, he finds out before he becomes a reporter that this is not so, and loses his real value. He should come right out of the university where he's been doing campus notes for the College Weekly, and he pitchforked out into city work without knowing whether the battery is at Harlem or Hunter's Point, and with the idea that he is a molder of public opinion and that the power of the press is greater than the power of money, and that the few lines he writes are of more value in the editor's eyes than is the column of advertising on the last page, which they are not. After three years, and it's sometimes longer, sometimes not so long, he finds out that he has given his nerves and his youth and his enthusiasm in exchange for a general fund of miscellaneous knowledge, the opportunity of personal encounter with all the greatest and most remarkable men and events that have risen in those three years, and a great fund of resource and patience. He will find that he has crowded the experiences of the lifetime of the ordinary young businessman, doctor, or lawyer, or man about town, into three short years, that he has learned to think and to act quickly, to be patient and unmoved when everyone else has lost his head, actually or figuratively speaking to write as fast as another man can talk, 
and to be able to talk with authority on matters of which other men do not venture even to think until they have read what he has written with a copy-boy at his elbow on the night previous. It is necessary for you to know this, that you may understand what manner of man young Albert Gordon was. Young Gordon had been a reporter just three years. He had left Yale when his last living relative died and had taken the morning train for New York, where they had promised him repertorial work on one of the innumerable greatest New York dailies. He arrived at the office at noon, and was sent back over the same road on which he had just come, to Spoyton Duval, where a train had been wrecked and everybody of consequence to suburban New York killed. One of the old reporters hurried him to the office again with his copy, and after he had delivered that, he was sent to the tombs to talk French to a man in murderer's row, who could not talk anything else, but who had shown some international skill in the use of a jimmy. And at eight, he covered a flower show in Madison Square Garden, and at eleven, was sent over to the Brooklyn Bridge in a cab to watch a fire and make guesses at the losses to the insurance companies. He went to bed at one, and dreamed of shattered locomotives, human beings lying still with blankets over them, rows of cells, and banks of beautiful flowers nodding their heads to the tunes of the brass band in the gallery. He decided when he awoke the next morning that he had entered upon a picturesque and exciting career, and as one day followed another, he became more and more convinced of it, and more and more devoted to it. He was twenty then, and he was now twenty-three, and in that time had become a great reporter, and had been to presidential conventions in Chicago, revolutions in Haiti, Indian outbreaks on the plains, at midnight meetings of moonlighters in Tennessee, and had seen what work earthquakes, floods, fire, and fever could do in great cities, and had contradicted the president, and borrowed matches from burglars. And now he thought he would like to rest and breathe a bit, and not to work again unless as a war correspondent. The only obstacle to his becoming a great war correspondent lay in the fact that there was no war, and a war correspondent without a war is about as absurd an individual as a general without an army. He read the papers every morning on the elevated trains for war clouds, but though there were many war clouds, they always drifted apart, and peace smiled again. This was very disappointing to young Gordon, and he became more and more keenly discouraged. And then as war work was out of the question, he decided to write his novel. It was to be a novel of New York life, and he wanted a quiet place in which to work on it. He was already making inquiries among the suburban residents of his acquaintance for just such a quiet spot, when he received an offer to go to the island of Opeki in the North Pacific Ocean, as secretary to the American consul at that place. The gentleman who had been appointed by the president to act as consul at Opeki was Captain Leonard T. Travis, a veteran of the Civil War, who had contracted a severe attack of rheumatism while camping out at night in the dew, and who, on account of this souvenir of his efforts to save the Union, had allowed the Union he had saved to support him in one office or another ever since. He had met young Gordon at a dinner, and had had the presumption to ask him to serve as his secretary, and Gordon, much to his surprise, had accepted. The idea of quiet life in the tropics with new and beautiful surroundings, and with nothing to do and plenty of time in which to do it, and to write his novel besides, seemed to Albert to be just what he wanted. And though he did not know nor care much for a superior officer, he agreed to go with him promptly, and proceeded to say good-bye to his friends and to make his preparations. Captain Travis was so delighted with getting such a clever young gentleman for his secretary that he referred to him to his friends as my attaché of legation. Nor did he lessen that gentleman's dignity by telling anyone that the attaché's salary was to be five hundred dollars a year. His own salary was only fifteen hundred dollars, 
and though his brother-in-law, Senator Rainsford, tried his best to get the amount raised, he was unsuccessful in doing so. The consulship to Opeki was instituted early in the 50s to get rid of and reward a third or fourth cousin of the president's, whose services during the campaign were important, but whose after-presence was embarrassing. He had been created consul to Opeki as being more distant and unaccessible than any other known spot, and had lived and died there, and so little was known of the island, and so difficult was communication with it, that no one knew he was dead, until Captain Travis, in his hungry haste for office, had uprooted the sad fact. Captain Travis, as well as Albert, had a secondary reason for wishing to visit Opeki. His physician had told him to go to some warm climate for his rheumatism, and in accepting the consulship, his object was rather to follow out his doctor's orders at his country's expense than to serve his country at the expense of his rheumatism. Albert could learn but very little of Opeki, nothing indeed, but that he was situated about 100 miles from the island of Octavia, which island, in turn, was simply described as a coaling station 300 miles distant from the coast of California. Steamers from San Francisco to Yokohama stopped every third week at Octavia, and that was all that either Captain Travis or his secretary could learn of their new home. This was so very little that Albert stipulated to stay only as long as he liked it, and to return to the States within a few months if he found such a change of plan desirable. As he was going to what was an almost undiscovered country, he thought it would be advisable to furnish himself with a supply of articles with which he might trade with the native Opekians, and for this purpose he purchased a large quantity of brass rods, because he had read that Stanley did so, and added to these brass curtain chains, and about two hundred lead medals, similar to those sold by street peddlers during the Constitutional Centennial Celebration in New York City. He also collected even more beautiful, but less expensive decorations for Christmas trees at a wholesale house on Park Row. These he hoped to exchange for furs or feathers or weapons, or for whatever other curious and valuable trophies the island of Opeki boasted. He already pictured his rooms on his return hung fantastically with cross spears and boomerangs, feather headdresses, and ugly idols. His friends told him that he was doing a very foolish thing, and argued that once out of the newspaper world, it would be hard to regain his place in it. But he thought the novel that he would write while lost to the world at Opeki would serve to make up for his temporary absence from it, and he expressly and impressively stipulated that the editor should wire him if there was a war. Captain Travis and his secretary crossed the continent without adventure, and took passage from San Francisco on the first steamer that touched at Octavia. They reached that island in three days, and learned with some concern that there was no regular communication with Opeki, and that it would be necessary to charter a sailboat for the trip. Two fishermen agreed to take them and their trunks, and to get them to their destination within sixteen hours, if the wind held good. It was a most unpleasant sail. The rain fell with calm, unrelentless persistence from what was apparently a clear sky. The wind tossed the waves as high as the mast and made Captain Travis ill, as there was no deck to the big boat. They were forced to huddle up under pieces of canvas and talked but little. Captain Travis complained of frequent twinges of rheumatism and gazed forlornly over the gunwale at the empty waste of water. "'If I've got to serve a term of imprisonment on a rock in the middle of the ocean for four years,' he said, I might just as well have done something first to deserve it. This is a pretty way to treat a man who bled for his country. This is gratitude, this is. Albert pulled heavily on his pipe and wiped the rain and spray from his face and smiled. Oh, it won't be so bad when we get there, he said. They say these southern people are always hospitable, and the whites will be glad to see anyone from the States. 
"'There will be a round of diplomatic dinners,' said the consul, with an attempt at cheerfulness. "'I have brought two uniforms to wear at them.' It was seven o'clock in the evening when the rain ceased, and one of the black, half-naked fishermen nodded and pointed at a little low line on the horizon. "'Opeki,' he said. The line grew in length until it proved to be an island, with great mountains rising to the clouds, and, as they drew nearer and nearer, showed a level coast running back to the foot of the mountains and covered with a forest of palms. They next made out a village of thatched huts around a grassy square, and at some distance from the village a wooden structure with a tin roof. "'I wonder where the town is?' asked the consul, with a nervous glance at the fisherman. One of them told him that what he saw was the town. "'That?' gasped the consul. "'Is that where all the people on the island live?' The fisherman nodded, but the other added that there were other natives further back in the mountains. "'But they were bad men who fought and ate each other.' The consul and his attaché of legation gazed at the mountains with unspoken misgivings. They were quite near now, and could see an immense crowd of men and women, all of them black, and clad but in the simplest garments, waiting to receive them. They seemed greatly excited, and ran in and out of the huts, and up and down the beach, as wildly as so many black ants. But in the front of the group they distinguished three men who they could see were white, though they were clothed, like the others, simply in a shirt and a short pair of trousers. Two of these three suddenly sprang away on a run and disappeared among the palm trees, but the third one, when he recognized the American flag in the halyards, threw his straw hat in the water and began turning handsprings over the sand. "'That young gentleman, at least,' said Albert, gravely, "'seems pleased to see us.' A dozen of the natives sprang into the water and came wading and swimming toward them, grinning and shouting and swinging their arms. "'I don't think it's quite safe, do you?' "'said the consul, looking out wildly to the open sea. "'You see, they don't know who I am.' "'A great black giant threw one arm over the gunwale "'and shouted something that sounded as if it were spelt Owa, "'as the boat carried him through the surf. "'How do you do?' said Gordon, doubtfully. "'The boat shook the giant off under the wave "'and beached itself so suddenly "'that the American consul was thrown forward to his knees. "'Gordon did not wait to pick him up, "'but jumped out and shook hands with the young man "'who had turned handsprings, while the natives gathered about them in a circle and chatted and laughed in delighted excitement. "'I'm awfully glad to see you,' said the young man, eagerly. "'My name's Stedman. I'm from New Haven, Connecticut. Where are you from?' "'New York,' said Albert. "'This,' he added, pointing solemnly to Captain Travis, who was still on his knees in the boat, "'is the American consul to Opeki.' The American consul to Opeki gave a wild look at Mr. Stedman of New Haven and the natives. "'See here, young man!' "'He gasped. "'Is this all there is of Opeki?' "'The American consul?' "'said young Stedman, with a gasp of amazement, "'and looking from Albert to Captain Travis. "'Why, I never supposed they would send another here. "'The last one died about fifteen years ago, "'and there hasn't been one since. "'I've been living in the consul's office with the Bradleys. "'But I'll move out, of course. "'I'm sure I'm awfully glad to see you. "'It'll make it so much more pleasant for me.' "'Yes.' "'said Captain Travis, bitterly, "'as he lifted his rheumatic leg over the boat. "'That's why we came.' "'Mr. Stedman did not notice this. "'He was too much pleased to be anything but hospitable. "'You are soaking wet, aren't you?' he said. "'And hungry, I guess. "'You come right over to the consul's office "'and get on some other things.' "'He turned to the natives "'and gave some rapid orders in their language, "'and some of them jumped into the boat at this "'and began to lift out the trunks.' and others ran off toward a large, stout old native 
who was sitting gravely on a log, smoking, with the rain beating unnoticed on his gray hair. "'They've gone to tell the king,' said Stedman, "'but you'd better get something to eat first, and then I'll be happy to present you properly.' "'The king,' said Captain Travis, with some awe. "'Is there a king?' "'I never saw a king,' Gordon remarked, "'and I'm sure I never expected to see one sitting on a log in the rain.' "'He's a very good king,' said Stedman, confidentially. "'And though you mightn't think it to look at him, "'he's a terrible stickler for etiquette and form. "'After supper he'll give you an audience, "'and if you have any tobacco, "'you'd better give him some as a present, "'and you'd better say it's from the president. "'He doesn't like to take presents from common people. "'He's so proud. "'The only reason he borrows mine "'is because he thinks I'm the president's son.' "'What makes him think that?' "'demanded the consul, with some shortness.' Young Mr. Stedman looked nervously at the consul, and at Albert, and said that he guessed someone must have told him. The consul's office was divided into four rooms with an open court in the middle, filled with palms, and watered somewhat unnecessarily by a fountain. "'I made that,' said Stedman, in a modest, offhand way. "'I made it out of hollow bamboo reeds connected with the spring, and now I'm making one for the king. He saw this and had a lot of bamboo sticks put up all over the town, without any underground connections.' "'and couldn't make out why the water wouldn't spurt out of them. "'And because mine spurts, he thinks I'm a magician.' "'I suppose,' grumbled the consul. "'Someone told him that, too?' "'I, I suppose so,' said Mr. Stedman, uneasily. "'We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages.' "'And now back to our story.' There was a veranda around the consul's office, and inside the walls were hung with skins and pictures from illustrated papers, and there was a good deal of bamboo furniture and four broad, cool-looking beds. The place was as clean as a kitchen. "'I made the furniture,' said Stedman, "'and the Bradleys keep the place in order.' "'Who are the Bradleys?' asked Albert. "'The Bradleys are those two men you saw with me,' said Stedman. "'They deserted from a British man-of-war that stopped here for coal, and they act as my servants.' "'One is Bradley Sr., and the other Bradley Jr.' Oh, "'Then vessels do stop here occasionally?' the consul said with a pleased smile. "'Well, not often,' said Stedman. "'Not so very often. About once a year.' The Nelson thought this was Octavia, and put off again as soon as she found her mistake. But the Bradleys took to the bush, and the boat's crew couldn't find them. When they saw your flag, they thought you might mean to send them back. "'so they ran off to hide again. "'They'll be back, though, when they get hungry.' "'The supper young Stedman spread for his guests, "'as he still treated them, "'was very refreshing and very good. "'There was cold fish and pigeon pie, "'and a hot omelet filled with mushrooms "'and olives and tomatoes and onions "'all sliced up together, "'and strong black coffee. "'After supper, Stedman went off to see the king, "'and came back in a little while "'to say that his majesty would give them an audience "'the next day after breakfast.' "'It is too dark now,' Stedman explained, "'and it's raining so that they can't make the street lamps burn. "'Did you happen to notice our lamps? "'I invented them. "'But they don't work very well yet. "'I've got the right idea, though, "'and I'll soon have the town illuminated all over, "'whether it rains or not.' "'The consul had been very silent and indifferent, "'looking during supper to all around him. "'Now he looked up with some show of interest. Uh, "'How much longer do you think it's going to rain?' "'he asked.' "'Oh, I don't know,' said Stedman, critically. "'Not more than two months, I should say.' "'The consul rubbed his rheumatic leg inside, but said nothing. 
"'The Bradleys returned around ten o'clock "'and came in very sheepishly. "'The consul had gone off to pay the boatman who had brought them, "'and Albert in his absence assured the sailors "'that there was not the least danger of their being sent away. "'Then he turned into one of the beds, "'and Zedman took one in another room, "'leaving the room he had occupied heretofore for the consul. "'As he was saying good night, "'Albert suggested that he had not yet told them "'how he came to be on a deserted island, "'but Stedman only laughed and said that that was a long story, "'and that he would tell him all about it in the morning. "'So Albert went off to bed without waiting for the consul to return, "'and fell asleep, wondering at the strangeness of his new life, "'and assuring himself that if the rain only kept up, "'he would have his novel finished in a month. "'The sun was shining brightly when he awoke, "'and the palm trees outside were nodding gracefully in a warm breeze. "'From the court came the odor of strange flowers, "'and from the window he could see the ocean brilliantly blue, "'and with the sun coloring the spray that beat against the coral reefs on the shore. "'Well, the consul can't complain of this,' he said, with a laugh of satisfaction, "'and pulling on a bathrobe, he stepped into the next room to awaken Captain Travis. "'But the room was quite empty, and the bed undisturbed.' The consul's trunk remained just where it had been placed near the door, and on it lay a large sheet of fool's cap with writing on it, and addressed at the top to Albert Gordon. The handwriting was the consul's. Albert picked it up and read it with much anxiety. It began abruptly. The fishermen who brought us to this forsaken spot tell me that it rains here six months in the year, and that this is the first month. I came here to serve my country, for which I fought and bled. "'but I did not come here to die of rheumatism and pneumonia. "'I can serve my country better by staying alive, "'and whether it rains or not, I don't like it. "'I have been grossly deceived, and I am going back. "'Indeed, by the time you get this, "'I will be on my return trip, "'as I intend leaving with the men who brought us here "'as soon as they can get the sail up. "'My cousin, Senator Rainsford, "'can fix it all right with the President, "'and can have me recalled in proper form after I get back.' "'but of course it would not do for me to leave my post "'with no one to take my place, "'and no one could be more ably fitted to do so than yourself, "'so I feel no compunctions at leaving you behind. "'I hereby, therefore, accordingly appoint you my substitute "'with full power to act, to collect all fees, sign all papers, "'and attend to all matters pertaining to your office as American consul, "'and I trust you will worthily uphold the name of that country and government "'which it has always been my pleasure and duty to serve.' Your sincere friend and superior officer, Leonard T. Travis. P.S. I did not care to disturb you by moving my trunk, so I left it, and you can make what use you please of whatever it contains, as I shall not want tropical garments where I am going. What you will need most, I think, is a waterproof and an umbrella. P.S. Look out for that young man, Stedman. He is too inventive. I hope you will like your high office, but as for myself, I am satisfied with little old New York. Opeki is just a bit too far from civilization to suit me. Albert held the letter before him and read it over again before he moved. Then he jumped to the window. The boat was gone, and there was not a sign of it on the horizon. That miserable old hypocrite, he cried, half angry and half laughing. If he thinks I'm going to stay here alone, he's very greatly mistaken. And yet, why not? he asked. He stopped soliloquizing and looked around him, thinking rapidly. As he stood there, Stedman came in from the other room, fresh and smiling from his morning's bath. "'Good morning,' he said. "'Where's the consul?' "'The consul,' said Albert, gravely, "'is before you.' 
"'In me you see the American consul to Opeki. "'Captain Travis,' Albert explained, "'has returned to the United States. "'I suppose he feels that he can best serve his country "'by remaining on the spot. "'In case of another war, now, for instance, "'he would be there to save it again.' "'And what are you going to do?' asked Stedman, anxiously. "'You won't run away too, will you?' Albert said that he intended to remain where he was and perform his consular duties, to appoint him as secretary, and to elevate the United States in the opinion of the Opekians above all other nations. "'They may not think much of the United States in England,' he said, "'but we are going to teach the people of Opeki that America is first on the map, and that there is no second. "'I'm sure it's very good of you to make me your secretary,' said Stedman, with some pride. "'I hope I won't make any mistakes. "'What are the duties of a consul secretary?' "'That,' said Albert, "'I do not know. "'But you are rather good at inventing, "'so you can invent a few. "'That should be your first duty, "'and you should attend to it at once. "'I will have trouble enough "'finding work for myself. "'Your salary is five hundred dollars a year. "'And now,' he continued briskly, "'we want to prepare for this reception. "'We can tell the king that Travis "'was just a guard of honor for the trip, "'and that I have sent him back "'to tell the president of my safe arrival.' "'That will keep the president from getting anxious. "'There is nothing,' continued Albert, "'like a uniform to impress people who live in the tropics, "'and Travis, it so happens, has two in his trunk. "'He intended to wear them on state occasions, "'and as I inherit the trunk and all that is in it, "'I intend to wear one of the uniforms, "'and you can have the other. "'But I have first choice, because I'm consul.' "'Captain Travis's consular outfit "'consisted of one full-dress and one undress "'United States uniform.' Albert put on the dress coat over a pair of white flannel trousers and looked remarkably brave and handsome. Stedman, who was only eighteen and quite thin, did not appear so well until Albert suggested his patting out his chest and shoulders with towels. This made him rather warm, but helped his general appearance. "'The two Bradleys must dress up, too,' said Albert. "'I think they ought to act as a guard of honor, don't you? The only things I have are blazers and jerseys, but it doesn't much matter what they wear as long as they dress alike.' He accordingly called in the two Bradleys, and gave them each a pair of the captain's rejected white duck trousers and a blue jersey apiece with a big white Y on it. "'The students of Yale gave me that,' he said to the younger Bradley, in which to play football, and a great man gave me the other. His name is Walter Camp, and if you rip or soil that jersey, I'll send you back to England in irons, so be careful.' Stedman gazed at his companions in their different costumes doubtfully. "'It reminds me,' he said, of private theatricals, of the time our church choir played pinafore. Yes, assented Albert, but I don't think we look quite sharp enough. I tell you what we need, medals. You never saw a diplomat without a lot of decorations and medals. Well, I can fix that, Stedman said. I've got a trunk full. I used to be the fastest bicycle rider in Connecticut, and I've got all my prizes with me. Albert said doubtfully that that wasn't exactly the sort of medal he meant. "'Perhaps not,' returned Stedman, as he began fumbling in his trunk. "'But the king won't know the difference. "'He couldn't tell a cross of the Legion of Honor from a medal for the tug-of-war. "'So the bicycle medals, of which Stedman seemed to have an innumerable quantity, "'were strung in profusion over Albert's uniform, "'and then a lesser quantity over Stedman's, "'while a handful of leaden ones, those sold on the streets for the constitutional centennial, "'with which Albert had provided himself, were wrapped up in a red silk handkerchief, "'for presentation to the king. "'With them Albert placed a number of brass rods and brass chains, "'much to Stedman's delighted approval. 
"'That is a very good idea,' he said. "'Democratic simplicity is the right thing at home, of course, "'but when you go abroad and mix with crowned heads, "'you want to show them that you know what's what.' "'Well,' said Albert, gravely, "'I sincerely hope this crowned head don't know what's what. "'If he reads Connecticut Agricultural State Fair, "'One Mile Bicycle Race, First Prize, on this badge, "'when we're trying to make him believe it's a war medal, "'it might hurt his feelings.' Bradley Jr. went ahead to announce the approach of the American embassy, which he did with so much manner that the king deferred the audience a half hour, in order that he might better prepare to receive his visitors. When the audience did take place, it attracted the entire population to the green spot in front of the king's palace, and their delight and excitement over the appearance of the visitors was sincere and hearty. The king was too polite to appear much surprised, but he showed his delight over his presence as simply and openly as a child. Thrice he insisted on embracing Albert, and kissing him three times on the forehead, which, Stedman assured him in a side-whisper, was a great honor, an honor which was not extended to the secretary, although he was given a necklace of animal claws instead, with which he was better satisfied. We'll return with Part 2 next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.